0: This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, August 19th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Good
1: morning. Today's reading is from Acts 8, verses 25 through 40, which says, When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Sumerian villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. The man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. "'How can I,' he said, "'unless someone explains this to me?' So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading a passage of Scripture. "'He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, "'and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, "'so he did not open his mouth. "'In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. "'Who can speak for his descendants? "'For his life was taken from the earth.'" The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began what that, with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came upon some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he ordered the chariot to stop. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but he went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azatos and traveled about preaching gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is God's
0: Word. You may have a seat. Let me pray and ask God to move me out of the way and let him say what he needs to say if you bow with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. You are great, you are good, you are gracious, you are generous. We are unworthy, Lord, to be in your presence, but you have made us worthy. You have invited us through the blood of your son, Jesus, and through him, Lord, you have overcome our pride and you have removed our shame and our guilt, and we praise You for that. We praise You that we can come before You as Your children in whom You delight to hear worship You. This morning, Spirit, would You teach us? Teach us of our own salvation. Teach us of the truth that is in Your Word. Move me out of the way and do the work that only You can do, Spirit. The work of conviction. The work of comfort. Heart work that changes us from the inside out. Teach us and remind us of the joy of our own salvation as we find ourselves overwhelmed by the distractions and the weights that crush us in this life. Let them feel light as we come and rest in you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, teach us also that others might be taught. Equip us that others might be saved and empower us to open our mouths and to be witnesses to anyone who crosses our road. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Well, we have been going through the book of Acts, almost done with the first sections, really two sections that we're going through. Um, Generally speaking, the church, and I mean the church at large, but also we see the early church here in Acts, is called to do two things to gather and to scatter. We are called to gather as worshipers, and we are commanded to go as disciple makers. We are called to relate to one another like family, like the household of God, and yet we are also called to relate to the world as ambassadors and missionaries. Now, none of us are yet perfect, and so churches work to live out their faith in these two things, intention. Kind of, we get good at one and not the other, and not one and the other, and it's difficult. It's not perfect. It's in process as we saw Acts 1-7, through 7, as we kind of watched the, the church grow and, and, and form, we see that the early church got really good at gathering together in Jerusalem. And each chapter isn't just a year or a month, there's much time that's kind of passing. And so over the years, they're, they're good at gathering, but they also struggled a bit to scatter towards the ends of the earth. And so in order to be the witnesses to all the nations, just as Jesus had commanded, they're going to have to actually leave the comfort of their families and the familiarity of their homes to actually go to another nation. They're a little bit reluctant. And so God stirs them, pushes them, if you will, by allowing this great persecution that begins with the murder of Stephen. And his disciples begin to be sent into the world. And so chapter 8, which we have been spending some time on, records the ministry of one of the seven deacons. I say that kind of lightly. He's not really called a deacon, but historically we kind of recognize these seven chosen servants as kind of the first deacons, if you will, of the church. His name is Philip. He'll later be known, as we see in Acts 21, as Philip the Evangelist. Now, Acts 8 reveals that Philip really kind of was the first evangelist, the first one to cross social and um, religious and geographic barriers in order to preach Jesus. And his ministry, if we, we had a map, you would see his ministry kind of goes in a big circle um, many of the missionary journeys do. It begins in Samaria, as we saw, and then it kind of comes down through Jerusalem, and then it goes to Gaza, which is close to the coast of the Mediterranean, and then he goes up the coast, and he eventually settles in Caesarea, which was just uh, west of Samaria. So he kind of does a big circle, and then we find him in Acts 21 with uh, a family. Now, before Philip was an evangelist, He was, as we saw in Acts 6, a servant. And before he was this chosen servant, he was a man who was full of the Spirit and loved Jesus and loved church. Now, Philip didn't one day go, man, I want to be an amazing evangelist. He didn't seek to be an evangelist. He didn't seek to have the title, just call me Philip the Evangelist. That's not what he was Aiming for, he simply did what God gave him to do in front of him, and through that became the man that God had made him to be. We see that Philip, from Acts 6 all the way to Acts 21, though we don't hear everything about him, we know that he remained a witness where he was at until it was clear he was supposed to be a witness somewhere else. Wherever he was, he was a servant witness. And this is the calling of every Christian. Wherever we're at, we are to be a servant witness. We're not to look at that you know, trip to Ethiopia or that hopeful one day thing I'm going to do and then I will begin to witness for Jesus. We are to be a witness where we're at right now until God says, go be a witness somewhere else. That's the normal Christian experience. We're going to do a series in First Thessalonians later in the fall, and it's really called the normal Christian life. And the normal Christian life includes hearing Jesus, believing Jesus, serving Jesus, and preaching Jesus wherever He has you or wherever He sends you. That's the normal Christian experience or ought be. But then on occasion... God has a special calling for some Christians, not because the Christians are special, but because God chooses to send a particular people sometimes, or a particular person, to a particular people for a particular purpose. And that's what we see with Philip. And to be honest, many of these kinds of special missions, special callings, don't make a lot of sense at the time. In fact, they require great sacrifice, and I would argue that many of them are not fully understood until you're looking in the rear view. And this is what we see with Philip. If we begin in Acts uh, chapter 8, we see that um, Philip is told directly by an angel to do something, and that's special, that's unique, that's not normative. I don't know how many people you've had conversations with that said, an angel told me to. Maybe they've said, God told me to. It's a very bold statement. You should be very cautious to say that. Not suspicious when we hear it, but at least discerning. But the Bible says, an angel of the Lord says something to Philip. And he says, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, for Philip, there is absolutely no confusion about what God is calling him to do. Because he is being told directly what it is, which seems really convenient and helpful. But Philip is told to go to Gaza. This is one of the five ancient Philistine cities, great cities that you would read about often in the Old Testament. Now, there are two roads leading out of Jerusalem to Gaza because there are actually two Gazas. In the first century, I believe, B.C. I may not have that date exactly correct. That's why I made it really general. Alexander the Great destroyed the city of Gaza. He leveled it, the old city of Gaza. A newer city had been built by the Romans that was a little bit closer to the Mediterranean. And so there was an old city, Gaza, and there was a new city, Gaza. And so Philip is told to go south to the old city. A place that is not nearly as inhabited or flourishing as the new city. A place that historians have often described as little more than a desert place. This is the city that's Less visited, so therefore this is the road that's less traveled. And the command for us is not strange because we know the end of the story. But for Philip, it had to feel a little weird. It had to feel maybe a little unusual. It doesn't say how he experienced it and what he felt, but it looked pretty impractical and perhaps unusual of a command. Now, the journey to the old city of Gaza was very long, Uh, it would be for Philip very lonely. And it was very different than what he had been doing up to this point. He had had great success being an evangelist to large populations in and around Samaria. And so practically speaking, the command is almost the opposite of what he had been doing or what he'd been familiar with. And so you'd think that if Philip who is later called the evangelist is such a rock star celebrity evangelist that you would want to send him send him to city centers send him to the places where the most population is because this guy can preach this guy can evangelize this guy can reach people we need to put him on a platform somewhere because that's how men think that's not how god works the command of the Lord to Philip is not hard to understand. And here's a little news flash. Most commands of the Lord are not hard to understand. But the commands that perhaps are sometimes difficult to obey are the ones where God says, go that way, and then that's all He says. And as you read the Old Testament, and even the new, as we see here, you realize that God does that a lot. He says, go this way and trust me. But what's going to happen? Just trust me. Gaza? Just trust me. And so, Philip will. When God says, go this way and trust me, unfortunately, he doesn't give us warnings about how hard it's going to be. He doesn't always give promises about how good it's going to be. He doesn't give many explanations. And for Philip, as he's maybe pondering for a moment whether he is going to go this direction, it actually can sound even worse than just go, trust me. The phrase found in verse 26 where it says go south, can be translated go at noon. Go at noon to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Noon in the Middle East? That would make it almost or close to the hottest part of the day. In the desert. That would not only make His journey uncomfortable, right? It would also make it relatively unlikely that anyone else would be traveling because they don't travel when it's the hottest. And so if you think about it on on the plainest level, God commands Philip to walk into a wilderness. A a journey that's going to require a long obedience because it's many miles. It's not just like a little, you know, one mile trip. It's going to require a long obedience in the same direction without any signs of life for a long time. That's what the command looks like on the surface. That's as much information as God gives. So without assurance of outcome or explanation even of the mission, like why am I going to Gaza exactly? Philip starts to walk in the opposite direction that he has been walking, in a difficult direction and in uncertain direction. And we are left to wonder why he chose to do that. Why does he go opposite of what he maybe would naturally, at least what I naturally on his behalf would feel or think? Why does he choose to walk in a a direction that's difficult or there's an easier path to, to get there or an easier time to go at? Why does he choose to walk a path that will assuredly have some suffering in a direction without guarantee of outcome? Why? Why does anyone obey such a command? And I would argue it's not because he understood it perfectly. It's not even because he likes it. It's because God has commanded it. That's enough for him. God has told him to go. It's troubling, I think, that we often read God's command. I say we intentionally, but we often read the commands of Christ as suggestions or advice that we will follow if we can determine some benefit for ourselves. Truly, when a command doesn't make sense or doesn't feel good or correspond to our experience, we will often naturally in our flesh ignore or modify or just flat out reject God's clear command. Or some of us, I'm sure there's none of us here who do this, spiritualize our disobedience. And what do I mean by that? Well, we'll get creative and we'll say, you know what, I'm, I'm just waiting for an angel. We may not say angel, but waiting for a messenger to tell me exactly what to do. Not realizing or accepting that God's Spirit has already revealed what we're supposed to do in His Word. And so we don't obey God's Word because we know exactly what He is doing, we obey because we know the one who's doing it. And we don't obey God's Word because it looks promising, but because we live by faith according to His promises. And and we don't obey God's Word even because it's easy, but because it's true. We obey God's Word because we believe if Jesus is writing what he says that obedience is actually how we closely walk with Jesus and that walking with Jesus results in joy no matter where the path actually leads. That's why we obey. And then it's amazing to consider this. So Philip, hears this command. And only as Philip walks in obedience to Jesus do the purposes of Christ become clear. He doesn't tell him ahead of time. He says, do this, trust me. And as Philip walks in obedience to that command that doesn't feel good, doesn't make sense, his purposes become clear. And like Philip, his purposes are to send us so that others might be saved. Did you know that in God's world, which is God's world, God's redemptive plan, there are no chance meetings, no coincidences, no accidental moments? Your perspective on the world changes when you begin to believe that deeply in God's sovereignty. Know, or when we know that, what we discover is that the most important things on whatever desert road or wilderness that you may find yourself may not actually be your own sanctification and growth. It actually may be someone else's salvation. If Christ poured out his life, for others, if God is an other-oriented God, why would our lives not follow the same? They are His, used for His purposes, and that purpose is to bring more to salvation. And in that, there's joy. But often in that, there's some desert roads. Well, as Philip begins to obey, God's plan unfolds and unexpectedly, an Ethiopian eunuch and his entourage are in the middle of the hot day going down this somewhat abandoned desert road back to Ethiopia. This man is a court official of the queen. The term Candace is kind of like Pharaoh. It's more of a title. It's not really her name. But they believe so much that the king of Ethiopia was like um, a son of the gods that he couldn't do actually any real work, and so the queen actually administrated most of the kingdom. So this this guy crosses paths with Philip as he's returning from worshiping in Jerusalem, it says. And it's interesting, in the book of Acts, out of all people, there's probably no more detailed description than this guy. They give so much information about him. He's a foreigner, he's African, he's a eunuch, He's wealthy, he's a royal official, he's educated, and he's religious. He is a man who has many things to be proud of and a couple things to be very ashamed of. And probably the most unfamiliar description in that list is eunuch. We don't talk about eunuchs very often unless we're studying Acts chapter 8. Eunuchs to be plain, were castrated males. And in some cases, they were called eunuchs if they were born with birth defects. But if they're castrated, it basically made them incapable, whether from birth or from surgery, incapable of reproduction. And in many ancient cultures, Ethiopia included, young male servants were sometimes made eunuchs by rulers in order to pacify them and subdue them. Some of this was forced. Some of this was voluntary. But all of it was permanent. It was especially common to castrate men who attended or or took care of the royal harem as they wouldn't be a threat to the kingdom or the king. Now, this particular eunuch served the queen of Ethiopia, managing the treasury. So he had much power, much responsibility. But unlike the people of Ethiopia who had worshipped false gods, it seems that this eunuch worshipped Yahweh, the God of the Jews. We don't know how that happened, why that happened, but he worships the God of the Jews. Now the text indicates that this man is uh, returning, as I said, from having worshipped in Jerusalem, which is interesting because the Old Testament forbids eunuchs from actual full participation in worship if you read in deuteronomy 21 3 in the law it says no one whose testicles are crushed or whose males organs is cut off shall enter the assembly of the lord and you think that's a really strange passage to be reading in deuteronomy 21 until you get to acts chapter 8 and things begin to make sense now there are all kinds of differing opinions as to why this law exists and really it doesn't matter, it's there. What matters is that eunuchs and this particular man was denied access to the temple and therefore he was prevented from dwelling really in the presence of God with God's people in its fullness. Now think about it in Ethiopia, this eunuch functioned in a position of power, in a position of prestige. But when he got to Jerusalem, which he intentionally comes to, his situation was perceived very differently. It was a permanent mark of humiliation, a mark of shame, a mark of rejection. He is literally and spiritually a crushed man. And so we're left to wonder like, well, how exactly did he worship since he can't really participate? Did he just hang out at synagogues. What did he do? We don't know. But we do know why he was there and why he wanted to worship. He wanted to be close to God. And because God sent Philip, it appears that God wants to be close to a crushed man like him. Which is beautiful. So, directed by the Spirit, Philip approaches this chariot. It's probably more of a wagon of sorts, with you know many others following him. And he hears him reading from the prophet Isaiah. He's not reading this. He's reading a large scroll of Isaiah. And so, directed by the Spirit, he he comes up and he hears him reading. He goes, "Hey, do you understand what you're reading?" Probably yells it, right? He's running along, sees Philip. What are you doing? Hey, you understand what you're reading? And he goes, no, unless someone explains it to me, get up here. So he comes up into the chariot. How can I understand unless someone guides me? And I just ask a really simple question. Are you prepared for that question? If someone's reading their Bible, if someone says, hey, Who's Jesus? Are you prepared to answer that question? Philip's prepared. So he gets up in the chariot and he finds him reading Isaiah 53. If you have your Bibles, you can turn backwards into Isaiah. If you ever open your Bible in half, you'll probably get the Psalms and turn to the right. In a couple books, you'll get to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. Very powerful passage. It's likely he's not only looking at Isaiah 53. I assure you, the scroll he's using doesn't have the number 53 in there. That was put in much later. but he has probably been reading large sections of Isaiah. Perhaps he's reading Isaiah chapters 52 to 56, what we know is that, which speaks about the coming salvation of the Lord. Isaiah 56 speaks specifically of the coming salvation to foreigners, even eunuchs. So here's what it reads in 56. He quotes 53, but my theory and others is that he's probably read large sections, and so he's probably read 56. Check out 56, Isaiah 56, verses 1 to 8. And just listen and imagine this eunuch having been prevented from worshiping the Lord for how many times he's gone there every time. It says this, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath not profaning it and keeps his hand from doing evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Which is what he experienced. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. What does that mean? I'm less than. I cannot have children. For thus says the Lord to the eunuch's, who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. Thou shalt not be what cut off. See the imagery that the eunuch would be hearing. Verse 6 says, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. That's where His presence is. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Right now they are not. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others. Other outcasts. To him besides those already gathered. Is it possible that this eunuch was reading Isaiah 56 as well? You bet your bottom dollar he was. This is speaking to him. This is speaking and giving him a hope that he has very recently experienced firsthand of not having. He has likely read this promise of coming salvation, this promise of full inclusion. But Isaiah 53, the passage that is quoted here in Acts chapter 8, reveals how this salvation is made possible. How this comes about. It came from the sacrifice of God's servant. The suffering servant. That's what this passage is known for. It probably labels it in your Bible. Even though many modern rabbis today read Isaiah 53, they have trouble with it because of what it says. I have many Jewish relatives, rabbis in my family who do not accept Yeshua, Jesus, as the Messiah. And you open up Isaiah 53 and you read it, and it sounds so explicitly like Jesus. But today, many rabbis identify the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 as the actual nation of Israel. That's what it's talking about. Or maybe Isaiah himself. Very few will say... It's the Messiah, only the more orthodox, and none will say it's Jesus. We know him to be Jesus. The suffering servant is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, he's reading this passage, Isaiah 53, this man who has uh, a eunuch, if you will, who has been cut up and and what does he hear? He hears a man who has borne our griefs. He hears about a servant that's carried his sorrows, who was pierced for transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. And then he reads, and by his wounds we are healed. Can you imagine how this man who was crushed literally, spiritually, Whether he himself willingly submitted to this thing or was forcibly done, whether he was oppressed or afflicted or humiliated as his manhood, if you will, was cut from him, we don't know. But then he reads like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. Very similar, I imagine, to maybe his own experience. Like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth in His humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation for his life is taken away from the earth? The eunuch reads about this. This future salvation and then this suffering servant that makes it possible. And unsurprisingly, he asks Philip, who is this talking about? Who is this one who is oppressed like me and for me? Who is this one who is humiliated like me and for me? Who is this one who is crushed like me and for me? Who is this one who suffered for me that I might enter into the everlasting presence of God with joy? That I might be restored? And Philip's response is simple says, beginning with this Scripture, He told them the good news about Jesus. The One who saves those who are crushed by their sin. Those who have great loss in their life and feel hopeless, separated from God. He tells them about Jesus. And you wonder, well, what did He actually say about Jesus? How did He begin with with this scripture and lead him from separation as a eunuch from God to salvation in Jesus and reconciliation with the Father. And so this, I think, guides all of our conversations and they're conversations that will not be popular today. I think the first thing he probably talked about was sin because that's what Isaiah 53 talks about a lot. It's not that Jesus died because He loves us. That's true. But He died for our sin. If we're going to talk about salvation, we're going to have to talk about brokenness. No one wants to talk about sin. No one wants to call anything sin. Isaiah chapter 3.53 uses three different words to talk about this brokenness. You've heard these words before, not the Hebrew versions, but the English translations. Sin, iniquity, transgression. It says it over and over again. This suffering servant died for transgression, died for iniquity, died for the sins of others. And each of these Hebrew words gives us a kind of a different picture of brokenness so we understand the situation we're in. Sin speaks of missing the mark, of falling short. We have a very inflated vision of the goodness that we act out. The reality is, any time we love still falls short of God's glory. Any justice we execute always falls short of God's perfect justice. There are many things that we do not hate, but there are also many things we do not love, and we commit sins by our passivity as much as we do as our t- activity. So, missing the mark. But iniquity also speaks of something different. That speaks of something that's been out of shape. I heard one pastor describe it as like an arm out of socket. Have you ever had your arm popped out of socket? You're not really able to do many one arm push ups that way. It hurts because you're weak. Even if you want to do something, you can't. You're bent out of shape. You're broken. And then transgression, which is the one maybe easiest to understand, that speaks of willful rebellion. In other words, we fall short, we are weak when we are disobedient. That is our problem, and it's an internal problem that cannot be fixed with external things. We have turned from God. All men have, in many ways, butchered their souls. And now we find ourselves separated from God. And paradoxically, we are full of pride and we are full of shame at the same time. much like this eunuch, who has much to be proud of and yet much to be ashamed of. We are powerful in the eyes of men and we are pitiful in the eyes of God, the one that we have turned from. And the call to repent, we hear that word a lot. It's Jesus' favorite word, I think. It's one of the first words He speaks. The call to repent is not merely just stop sinning but it's to turn away from that which is hurting you, which is making you weak, which is evidence of your rebellion, and to turn to the God who made you to be and live a certain way. And though we are really good at wrecking ourselves, we cannot fix ourselves. Regardless of our efforts, regardless, as you see this eunuch, of our material success, or our worldly position, we can hide, if you will, the scars, the permanent scars. We can cover them, but we cannot remove them. These are the very things that keep us from the presence of God. And like the eunuch, the closer we get to God when we're in our sin, the clearer that separation becomes. So he talked about sin. He's like, look, you're broken. And it's obvious because you cannot worship God. But he also talked about a savior. The eunuch cannot unseparate himself from God. God's law is God's law. And in many ways, this eunuch's condition is as permanent as it can get. He can't change that about himself. It's interesting how much we believe that we can manage our sin away. That we can rescue ourselves from sin. Okay? Imagine your sin. This will be easier for you guys than you ladies, but just go with it. Imagine your sin has made you a eunuch. Fix that. You can't. You can't. And though men try. We try to fix ourselves but we're in the same situation that this eunuch feels physically, separated spiritually from our God. We have a self-inflicted brokenness that we cannot fix and we cannot rebuild our broken relationship with God. God has to rebuild it for us. We are unable to enter into the presence of God and so God makes a way for us. We deserve to be crushed by God so he crushes his son for us. That word crush is really interesting. It's used in Deuteronomy to talk about who is not allowed as a eunuch into the presence of God. And then notice how it's used in Isaiah 53, verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Speaking of Jesus. Do You think that eunuch was being spoken to by God? You ever have some of those sermons where you're like, how does he know my life, right? Where the spirit is just like, bam, like nailing you? That's what's happening to this eunuch here. He's saying it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was not the will of the Lord to crush the eunuch. It was the will of the Lord to crush his son so that he could be with the eunuch. He says, it was the will of the Lord to put him to grief. And notice, when his soul, this is the one who's crushed, makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Again, a a word that would bring so much imagery to the eunuch, who can have no offspring. He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11 out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He shall bear their brokenness. See, this man, from outward appearance, right? From outward appearance, had everything. And yet, as he entered into the presence of God, it became very clear that he had nothing. Nothing that mattered. In his own homeland, he was respected. He was empowered. He was wealthy. But every time that eunuch came to worship in Jerusalem, He was prevented from entering into the presence of God and reminded of the experience or the loss that defined him. That one great success or that one great mistake didn't have to define him any longer though. In Christ, no sinful choice, no experience of suffering, whether it be your sin or or sin that has been brought into your life, has to define you. And it doesn't have to separate you from Christ, the one who suffered for you for that very purpose. Through belief in Jesus' death and resurrection, this eunuch and all who believe like him receive a new identity and a new relationship with God. So after sharing Jesus, Philip likely explains to him like, why are you on this road? Like, wow, this is amazing. Why are you here? And he probably tells him like, I'm here to make disciples and baptize them like Jesus told me. So more than anything, baptism is identification with Jesus. And more than anything, this man wants to die with Jesus so that he might live with him fully in the presence of God, that he might be saved and and dwell with God and God's people. And so he's like, there's water. He hears him like, yeah, I'm here to make disciples be baptized. Well, there's water. What's to stop us? And so he's baptized. And the act of baptism is a powerful picture that we've lost today. The act of baptism is something like, oh yeah, we'll just do baptisms every now and then. And we forget our baptism, though I believe communion is a moment when we actually remember it. Baptism is a powerful moment, an image where the full self, the immersion of oneself, the covering of every part of a life is renewed. It's cleansed by Jesus and renewed by Jesus. As you're buried with Jesus, the old is gone and the new is come. All the things you were defined by, all the things that happened to you, all the things that gave you identity are washed away, and Christ says, You are now new. It's beautiful, it's powerful, it's something that we all should participate in, and everyone should remember. But as we close, I want to note something that's really interesting. Not everything is new. What do I mean by that? The Bible says that after his baptism, the eunuch saw Philip no more, but he went on his way rejoicing. That's all we hear about the eunuch. You'll notice that the Bible doesn't say there was a miracle at his baptism. There was a miracle spiritually, but there was no miracle physically. He didn't quit his job. Then go be a missionary for Jesus. I mean, maybe he did. we not told that. And his man parts weren't miraculously regenerated. You go, know, well, big deal. Well, I actually think it is a big deal. He's still an Ethiopian eunuch in the flesh. And yet he rejoices. Because his hope isn't in the flesh. His hope isn't in the situation he is in. God hasn't removed him from that situation. He hasn't removed him from that condition. Like we have this wrong belief that God saves us and then everything's fixed. No, the most important things are fixed. He is left as an Ethiopian eunuch, but he has been made new in spirit. He is a new creation with a new and certain hope for the future. He no longer has to return Jerusalem to worship. He can worship God in spirit and truth wherever He's at. If you look lastly at Isaiah 53, particularly verse 5, this is what He is rejoicing over. As God said, I don't think it's verse 5. It's not verse 5. Don't quote me on that. It's Isaiah 56, verse 5. There you go. He says, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. Remember that? What is this hope? Like, I don't want to be a eunuch anymore. I'm going to give you something better. You're not going to have kids. You're not going to have a family, which is probably a mark of shame for him. Because I'm going to give you something better than that. Better than having sons and daughters. And I'm going to give you an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. That's where his joy comes from. It's not the joy that everything in his life completely transformed and everything suddenly prosperous and now he can zippity doo through Christianity. It's because he has certainty of his identity in Christ, certainty of his trajectory and destiny in Christ and in that he can hope and he can find joy. So some of us will identify more with Philip in the story. One who feels perhaps sent into an uncomfortable or a confusing wilderness that you wouldn't have chosen if given the option. But I will give you this eternal perspective that the road you are walking on right now is not for you. The road you are walking on right now is not for you, but it is for the salvation of others. And some of us will identify more with the Ethiopian eunuch in the story, though we may not want to, we probably all should at some level. One who maybe feels separated from God or marginalized by God's people. Perhaps you feel this way because you have what you consider a permanent brand or a mark of unrighteousness and shame. Know that you have come across, ironically, this road today to hear that Jesus died for you, to remove your shame, to remove your guilt to satisfy your deepest sense of loss so that you might live according to who He says you are and no one else. You are not that good thing or you are not that bad thing. You are a sinner saved by grace. A child of the King who is going to return for you. That should bring you joy. Amen? Let's pray.